This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Mark Lanterman, founder and CTO at Computer Forensic Services, which provide electronic discovery, forensic analysis, litigation support, advisory, and consultation services. Mark, thanks for chatting with us today. Thanks for having me, David. It's our pleasure. So, Mark, before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, and kind of how you got to where you are now? Sure. So I completed my undergrad and graduate degrees in computer science and in cybersecurity. I completed my postgrad work at Harvard University. I'm a professor at the University of St. Thomas School of Law. I teach a cybersecurity class at the law school. But I come out of a law enforcement background. I was a member of the United States Secret Service Electronic Crimes Task Force. So I worked in federal law enforcement for many years. And uh, our firm, we're the digital forensic crime lab for 38 law enforcement agencies. Wow. Wow. Okay. So tell me, what's kind of like, you know, a day in the life as a founder and CTO look like for you? Well, you know, the great part about my job is that there really is no day in the life. There's no moss growing, not even for a a single day. And I think that's because every security event, every cyber event, every situation that I get called in about is a new mystery that needs to be solved. And it truly is something new every single day. And I find my work to be really rewarding and satisfying And uh, having been an investigator for several years, this is a way for me to continue that type of work outside of my old career. Okay. So how do you see the relationship between digital forensics and cybersecurity? How do you see those things evolving? And what do you think the implications are as this evolution happens? Yeah, you know, I think that that's a great question. And I think that forensics is part of cybersecurity. Security, as I'm sure your listeners know, is not perfect. There's no such thing as perfect security. And it's a constant progression. And I think that forensics is hugely important to that because in order to fix a problem, you actually have to know what the problem is. And that's where forensics, I think, is able to provide actionable information. Sure. No, I completely agree. So question for you. In you know, the modern world, we're moving away from, um, let's call it physically accessible devices, in particular things like cloud and instanced computation, things like that, or like multi-honed people's VMs may live you know, amongst 90 other on an instanced system, right? How has forensics changed, digital forensics changed in the cloud era? Yeah, you know, it has changed and the sources of data have changed in the way that data is collected and preserved for use in digital investigations has changed. But I'll tell you, as the formats change and as the delivery systems change, I think that the forensic community has done a fairly good job of adapting to those changes. I'll tell you, when Microsoft first came out with the NTFS file system, I thought, oh boy, that's a problem. Turned out not to be a problem. Mm -hmm. When BitLocker came out, I thought, oh boy, that's going to be a problem for investigators. And it really hasn't been that big of a problem. So 
again, it's kind of like the cat and mouse. As technology progresses, so do the investigative tools and techniques. Okay. Yeah. So I haven't done disk forensics in a very long time, so I'm about to date myself. I believe a sleuth kit and things like that, that, you know, you could look at, uh, you know, Slack space on a drive and, and that thing, that type of stuff. How does that play in cloud space? Are there similar tools that listeners could, you know, look up and try themselves so that they can understand kind of how low level forensics can be done in cloud infrastructure? You know, and again, another good question. There really isn't Slack space in cloud data. So while investigator, I mean, I'm a big fan of finding what's, you know, the fragments in Slack or in the unallocated space. But what we are finding and what is very helpful are the artifacts that are left behind, like the logs. But, you know, a piece of advice to your listeners is log and log and log. Because we're seeing, you know, two types of responses. Let's say if a client has some type of a cyber event, we'll go in, we'll collect the logs, assuming it's, you know, related to an online account. And in one situation, we'll have logs going back six months. Wonderful. That helps us piece together the narrative of what actually happened. But then we're also seeing situations where logs are kept for three days. And that's not very helpful because usually, in my experience, organizations take a while before they realize they're the victims of a cyber attack. So my advice to your listeners is extend your logging periods. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I have a systems hardening background, you know, think blue teaming, if you will. And we used to have a theory that was keep everything that you can until one of two things happens. You run out of space to keep it, or your lawyer says, delete that. <laughs> and, and that's the approach because like you said, there is a huge gap between when an event happens and when it's discovered. Our research shows it's more than 190 days is the average dwell time before an incident is, is identified. Unless it's service disrupting, oftentimes anomaly detection is one of the least I guess, understood components of people's security practices because they just don't have the sensors. They don't have a good understanding of what normal looks like. So something is will be bad for long enough until somebody happens to notice that that signal patterns there are like, hey, what is this leaving the network? Or why is this, why is our server making client connections out? You know, and it often, like I said, in our research, it's more than 190 days. So if I could add to that, I would say there has been research done, folks. So uh, it's not just good advice. It's like uh, proven experience. And David, if I could just add one more thing, we were involved in a cyber breach response just a couple of months ago, and the client, the data was compromised and the data was exfiltrated from their systems. But what I thought was unfortunate is that our client had kept personally identifiable information on their employees and on their clients going back 13 years. And all of that was compromised. And I can think of no legitimate business reason to maintain that type of information for that long. So I guess my advice would be Make sure that you have a document retention policy and then follow it. 
if you don't need to hang on to sensitive data, then don't hang on to sensitive data. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I guess to clarify the data I'm thinking of is logs, access logs, network telemetries, you know, this type of uh, that type of think, you know, forensically applicable data. But I totally agree with you. If you don't need PII around, definitely don't keep it. That's for sure. So with your experience in law enforcement, what have been, you know, some of the most challenging and interesting cases that you've worked on and what lessons can be learned from those? Yeah, sure. So while they may not be the most challenging technically homicide cases, especially those with a domestic abuse element, are always tough. And I worked on a case It got a lot of international attention, but there was an individual here in Minnesota. He was a preacher at his local church. He went on a website called Ashley Madison, which is a website that promotes adultery. I guess I'd call it a dating site for married people. So he went on Ashley Madison, developed relationships with multiple women, decided he did not want to be married, but his church frowned on divorce. So instead of the divorce, he did, I guess, the next best thing. He went on the dark web and he hired a hitman to murder his wife. Mm. He paid five bitcoins. You can do the math on that. He paid five bitcoins for the hit. The problem is the hitman was a scam. You know, it's not like you're going to call the cops and say, hey, I paid my hitman five bitcoin and he didn't kill my wife. It's you know, breach a contract, maybe, but uh, right. and uh, so the hitman doesn't show up, and he murdered his wife and staged it to look like a suicide. Well, what was interesting is this hitman service had their website hacked, and the messages with potential customers posted. It came to the attention of the FBI. So now we have one half of the communications with the FBI. But during the homicide investigation, the police department seized the husband's computers and on his laptop was an encrypted, deleted iPhone backup. We were able to recover that backup. We were able to bypass that backup's encryption. And we recovered a deleted note, you know, the the note application on the iPhone. Mm -hmm. We recovered a deleted note, the deleted note from the husband's phone that we found on the computer. There was a deleted note with the Bitcoin address of the hitman that the FBI was investigating. So he was convicted. We had a, I think it was a seven or eight day jury trial. He was convicted of first degree murder and he'll spend the rest of his life in jail. And it came down to a note from an iPhone and we didn't even have access to the iPhone. Yeah. Wow. So it was like the Matroska dolls, you know, it's uh, down down inside of one thing was another thing and inside of that was something else. Yeah. Wow. I remember that case being in the news. And I want to say there were other, not related to murder, but I think there were other crimes that were uncovered via that Ashley Madison leak. I think there were people who got caught in some fraud and some other stuff through that dump, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. It it was a very interesting case. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, applied practically, 
what kind of lessons would you say are there for, because obviously I'm not proposing that we teach people how to not get caught for murder. I don't mean it in that. <laughs> I don't mean those kind of lessons, but you know, what kind of lessons for practitioners would you say are there? Is it like perhaps a, a way to look at problems or, you know, how would you say that application today would be useful? Well, I think the best advice that I can give to forensic analysts or investigators is keep an open mind. I know coming out of law enforcement that there may be a tendency to think, well, I know this guy's guilty because he's the one I'm interviewing. Mm -hmm. And I've come, as I've been doing this a long time, I realize that that's not always true. And in fact, in our role as the digital forensic crime lab for 38 law enforcement agencies, I'll tell you that the scariest thing is that our work, we actually exonerate the suspect, the accused, the charged in about 14% of our cases. Wow. And I think that that is a scary number. I think 1% is scary. But to see 14% of the cases brought to us, we actually exonerate the suspect. And I'm proud of our team, you know, for that statistic. Sure. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. So like the truth will set you free because they're presumably, like you said, they have investigative bias and they convince themselves. And we see all the time people getting released from prison after lengthy amounts of time being there where it takes that long for some type of evidence to present itself that says this person didn't do it. So yeah, that is very interesting. So in that vein, so what are some common misconceptions, you know, about digital forensics and e-discovery that you encounter and like, how do you address them and how could our listeners think about those things, those mistakes in advance? Yeah, great question. So, you know, we provide litigation support and the way I like to think of the distinction for folks in litigation is that e-discovery tells you what's inside of a file cabinet. Forensics tells you who put it there, when did they put it there, where did that file come from, and when. So I think that a lot of folks, and based on your question, I think you understand that, that they are the same thing, but they are not. Many people think they are, but they are not. And they both have their place, but they answer different types of questions. You know, e-discovery answers the the what question. Mm -hmm. Forensic takes it a few steps further and answers the how, who, when, and I think most importantly, the why. Mm -hmm. Sure. So e-discovery being a facet, actually, of what is overall digital forensics. It makes me think of, um, you know, there's, I like to fish. Uh, and we have a saying, you know, fishing is uh, all trout are salmon, but not all salmon are trout. You know, because they're all seeing the salmonoid uh, trouts are in the salmonoid family. And uh, I guess that would be a similar analogy, like uh, e-discovery is part of forensics, but forensics is a much bigger category than, say, just e-discovery. So if you were a CISO out in the world, what kind of advice would you give them for maintaining an operation that was, let's call it forensically friendly, you know, because that's, I think a lot of people get trapped in my experience. A lot of people get trapped with, oh, I didn't know to know that, but now they wish they had a time machine to go back and collect something or operate their system in a certain way. And aside from just logging, for example, what are some other things that people should be considering about perhaps, let's say an enterprise operation? Yeah, thank you. 
And, you know, think of a cyber event as game day. You need to pick your team. You need to practice with your team. You need to know who your team is. Have you drafted people for your team already? You need to be prepared with a game plan before game day. Mm -hmm. And I have been personally involved in cyber event responses in both of those types of scenarios. In one case, the organization, they have their Rolodex ready. They have their attorney on board. They have a PR firm, a public relations firm, all set, queued up, ready to to share their message. You know, the typical, we care about security and we're looking into this kind of message. They have the vendors already chosen. The contracts are already in place ahead of time. And it moves very smoothly, very quickly. And the faster you can get your arms around a cyber event, the better, both for your reputation and your operations, not to mention financially. Mm -hmm. But then I've also been involved in responses in which an organization has not been prepared. They have no idea what to do. They don't have any written policies. They don't have a lawyer, you know, on retainer. They, you know, they're not even sure who their service providers are. Mm -hmm. That gets very messy. That can get very expensive. So while policies may not be sexy, that's a good use of resources. And not to mention, you know, have a practice, have a tabletop exercise and learn from the mistakes that are made. It's better to fail in practice than on Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah, absolutely. I very much agree. So can you tell me, and I'm not asking for specific numbers, obviously, but just ballparks, what's the delta between having retained IR services? Because you mentioned already have a response team in mind, like if you're going to need external help, have that in place so you're not you know, negotiating. I would imagine that's significantly less expensive than having to call smoke jumpers, if you will, to come, you know, respond to your breach. Could you give people an idea? Is my assumption correct? Is it much less expensive to have these people already retained? You already have, because for example, DDoS scrubbing, there are a lot of scrubbing services in the world, right? It is far cheaper to already have a standing contract with them so that you can do it on demand. You can you know, route your traffic through these scrubbing centers, but you have the contracts already in place before you start to get attacked. But if you wait until you're under a DDoS and you call someone and say, hey, I'm under attack and I want to buy it, it's almost 10 times as expensive. Like the difference is astounding. Is that the same for forensic, you know, external IR help? Yeah, it certainly is. You know, there's a benefit to having an ongoing relationship with an IR vendor Mm -hmm. So that when something bad does happen, you already have that relationship and they're going to drop everything to help the organization. But here is a little nuance to this. The most important thing isn't necessarily having the victim organization, having an IR vendor on retainer. The trick is having your law firm retain your vendor. Because in my experience, attorney work product privilege will then attach to the vendor that's assisting an organization 
with this response. Mm -hmm. If the expert, if the vendor is retained by the law firm, then that company has significant additional protection about disclosure. Mm -hmm. If I'm retained by an attorney on your behalf, if I get a subpoena, odds are I don't have to respond to it because it's attorney work product. Sure. If the company retains me directly, then I may need to disclose that information. So have your attorney on retainer, have a vendor on retainer, mm -hmm. but have that retention completed through the law firm. Sure. Yeah. You know, I have heard this many times in my career that a lot of people complain about having to have counsel in that way because they see it as this like running cost that, you know, because you don't get sued every day. People just don't. But they don't think of the other applications of of how you can use counsel in this way. And like you said, it's one way to keep those things at bay. I'll tell you, though, as an aside, I know someone, a friend of mine, who once he learned that, he started going to, if they were a publicly traded company, they have to do their financial disclosures every year, like at to their stockholders. Then I know a person who started pulling those reports, you know, the earn cost and earnings reports that publicly traded companies have to do. And he looked for in the budgets, he looked for big jumps in legal expenses that were because that is disclosed. They don't say what it was on, but you can see the the big spend in legal that maybe if it wasn't there the year before or if it's suddenly spiked as opposed to whatnot. And he started to guess that this is maybe somebody who has experienced some type of cyber event. And he started playing the stock market this way. I don't know how it ended up working out for him, but I thought it was pretty genius. It's like, you know, following the lump through the snake, right? You know, obviously you don't know what you're going to get when it comes out, but it may be some kind of insightful thing. And and he was buying stocks or, you know, I, or I guess it's the term is shorting stocks. I think he was he was trying to bet against people who he thought might eventually then disclose that they had had a breach and then it might dip their stock. And, you know, it's a bunch of stuff I don't mess with. I'm, I'm not so smart to mess with the stock market, but I thought it was very interesting. And that was his reaction to kind of learning that everybody else in the room was like, that's very smart. And the guy said, that's very smart. And I'm going to take advantage of that. So it was kind of <laughs> so. Talking about building teams, and I totally agree with you, like have your team together, practice on the field before Friday night, before the game. You know, it's like you practice all week long so that you win on Friday. And that's, sorry, that's a, I guess, high school football analogy. But building that team is very, very tricky, right? You don't only have specific people you need, but those people need specific, you know, skills and, and knowledge, experiences, things like that. And given your background in education and training, what do you see as the most critical skills in particular that leadership should be looking for in the people that they're hiring? And how would you propose people to develop both those skills, but for leadership to develop the ability to spot those skills? Yeah. So as your listeners know, the security industry is very fast paced. And I think that there really is no substitute for experience. But I have been through several courses with the SANS Institute, and I cannot say enough good about how they provide the most up-to-date educational offerings mm -hmm. with respect to cybersecurity, digital evidence, and managing people in completing those tasks. Mm -hmm. So a plug to them and disclosure, I have no financial ties to the SANS Institute, but their training is fantastic. 
And in fact, just as an aside, we get probably 30 to 40 resumes a month. And if I were to get one resume with a master's degree in cybersecurity, or I have an individual with three or four SAN certifications, in the hiring process, I'm going to lean toward the SAN certifications. They're intense. And if you complete that, it's a true real world accomplishment, in my opinion. Sure. No, I absolutely agree. You know, their authorship to presentation window is very small and relative to collegiate style, like let's call it, you know, typical academic model, the delta between when the the material is created and when it's delivered, unless it's some type of like, you know, political study class where they're studying current affairs. In my experience, a lot of what is taught is very, very old. So I, I used to work at Indiana University. And at the time, our comp sci program, they were learning Lisp. This is a programming language to our listeners. If you're not aware, this is a, I'll just say quite dated. Uh, it's as old as me. I'll say that. But yeah, that's yeah. what they were learning to teach programming. Not Perl. Perl was available at the time. Not C. C obviously was available at the time. But they didn't teach them. And I will tell you, I've never seen Lisp in use anywhere in the wild ever not an actual use. I've seen more Fortran and COBOL than I have seen Lisp used in the world. So it's very interesting to think that you could be spending all of this time learning something that, you know, frankly, is already antiquated. Yeah, that's a great point. And I will say it is one nice thing about the SANS Institute is that their material is kept current. Mm -hmm. So a class that you take in January will be updated by August in most cases. Sure. And their professors are all practitioners, in my experience, the people who teach it. I'm also a fan of SANS. I think they've done great things for you know the industry, the world. For listeners, we run four conferences a year, the Team Cymru Underground Economy Conference, as well as three uh, regional internet security events. We call them RISE conferences. And at all of those events, we provide continuing professional education credits that can be used to maintain your SANS certifications. So let's talk about the future. So this is one of those kind of open-ended questions, you know, because obviously I'm not going to call you in five years to tell you you were right or wrong. So feel free to give, you know, whatever answer you want. But five years from now, what do you think cyber risk management is going to look like? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's a tough question. Technology is no longer compartmentalized thing. It it used to be that there was cyber and physical security, and these two things were distinct. And I think that has led to a lot of organizations putting responsibility only to a security team. And that's not realistic anymore. And I think that cyber risk management is something that we will see integrated throughout an organization. And I think that as technology controls more of our physical world, that will only become more and more important. So I think that companies that don't will fall by the wayside. Okay. So, and for the individual, for the practitioner, what are, say, three pieces of advice that you would give to someone, you know, maybe starting in their journey or newly appointed to be the CISO or CTO? What would be three pieces of actionable advice that you could give? Sure. So number one, be constructively self-critical. I think it's very easy in this industry to second guess yourself. I do it all the time. And that comes with the territory because there is always something new. 
Now, something that neither you or anyone else has heard about. So I think that if practitioners channel those feelings in a positive way and be confident in their abilities, they'll go far. And it's good to be self-critical. It's good to self-evaluate. And I think sometimes that can turn into getting down on yourself, though. But turn that around and channel that in a positive way. Mm -hmm. Number two, always be mentally prepared for the worst. Most organizations that I have encountered focus so much on thinking that something bad won't happen, that you know no one would ever do this to us, that they're not prepared when it does happen. And we spend so much time and energy and money on making sure that something doesn't happen, you know, managing the risk, that we can lose sight of what to do should something happen. So to alleviate this, my advice would be to prepare yourselves and others around you and know who to call if something goes wrong. Mm -hmm. And finally, my third piece of advice is communicate. I think that it's important that because cyber risk management is not something that can be compartmentalized, practitioners need to effectively communicate their specialized knowledge to others. I know that this is easier said than done, but really, I think it is a big part of the future where cyber professionals aren't living in a bubble. And uh, I would practice your writing and public speaking skills. Those are the folks that I love to work with most. You know, I took a writing class a few years ago, and I can't express how much it helped me to learn to organize my thoughts in a way that others can understand. That's absolutely great advice. You know, your number two point, uh, the expression that I say all the time to people is plan for the worst and you'll only ever be pleasantly surprised. And I think it captures the spirit of that very succinctly. And it's just true. Because if you are spending a bunch of the initial moments while you're already under duress, trying to figure out what to do, you are not on your good foot already. So unfortunately, that's all the time that we have today. If there were ways that folks, if they wanted to follow your work, see what you're doing, what are some ways that people can you know, keep in touch with you and, and see what you're up to? Sure. So, you know, I try to stay active on LinkedIn and uh, I have a monthly article in Bench and Bar magazine, which is a magazine for lawyers and judges. But every month I choose, I think, a relevant topic and uh, I would welcome suggestions for future articles. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Yeah, Bench and Bar, my first thought was maybe weightlifters and bartenders, but I wasn't sure how they would go together. So I'm sure. <laughs> anyway, so Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. It was a very insightful conversation and I hope our listeners got some good advice. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cymru.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.